Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Encounters with Jesus and John. <laughs> All right, so John chapter 4 tonight, and I think uh, we see in this chapter the mission of Jesus expanding to the Samaritans, and I think the story shows that the mission of God is wider than, than other people are comfortable with. It's wider than people are comfortable with. It teaches, uh, it shows that Jesus reaches out to people that others would rather not see included. And I think this is probably uh, something of what the story of the lost son is about. You know, we often focus on the prodigal, but uh, the, really the prodigal son tells us about the rotten attitude of the older brother too and how he wasn't responding correctly to what uh, Jesus, what the, what the father is trying to do. And so as we, we read our passage here, I'm going to, let's just read through this, and then what I think we'll do is we're going to go through and talk about its parts as we, we go through and, and just glean some things. And I want to tell you that there's too much here to unpack in one night, and my tendency is going to be to try to do it. And so if it gets too late, start waving the papers and fanning yourself, and let me know. Uh, get on with the pastor. we got to get out of here. It's nice. All right? All right, Father, help us, we pray tonight as we look to your word to hear, uh, hear from you and to be challenged by you. And I pray that you help us see a little bit more clearly who you are and what you expect of us and, and how you operate and how we can, uh, ref- we can uh, copy that or we can imitate that or how you modeled for us a way to reach people. And I pray also that you show us your heart, that your heart is really, um, is, um, is glad, is joyful, is exuberant when people come to know you, when the harvest is uh, beginning to come in. And so I pray that you help us to see these things and to to move like you do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think there is a model here for doing evangelism. I don't think it's the main point. I think the main point here is that what we have to offer is Jesus. And uh, Jesus is worthy of our putting our belief in him. And so uh, the Father seeks people. He doesn't seek places. I'd like to just point that out. He seeks people and not places. Let's look at um, chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 1. All right. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had, healed, had, had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, he was not, it was not Jesus who was baptizing uh, but his disciples. And so he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the place of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, well, Uh, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? 
for Jesus, uh, for excuse me, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of well uh, of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right to say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I see that you're a prophet. Right? I see that you're a prophet. Uh, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place uh, where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, uh, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I the, I the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asks, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and they made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you know, not, uh, you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you, have, uh, don't you have a saying, it is still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows, another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others uh, have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. And let's finish this uh, uh, little portion here. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told her everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because you, because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Amen. That's good. Uh, a good story. We could stop there and go home, but I'm not going to let you do that. 
we're going to take some time to look in depth at this. So I'd like to explore some of the implications of this encounter. Um, we see Jesus finding satisfaction in doing the will of God. First thing I'd like us to notice is in verses 1 through 6. Let's look at that again and, and notice where Jesus went. That's kind of the first subsection here is where Jesus went. It tells us in those verses uh, Jesus uh, was leaving where he was for a certain reason. And people sometimes went through Samaria. They sometimes went around, but uh, he learned the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And uh, although, in fact, Jesus wasn't baptizing, it was his disciples. And so it tells us this is the reason that he left and he went back once more to Galilee. So we have a nudge that pushes him out of uh, the Jerusalem area. Of course, he's visiting there. He's not from there. He's from where? It's from Galilee, right? Jesus from Galilee. And so he's visiting in Jerusalem at this time. And, and so what is it about the fact that the Pharisees are beginning to take notice that would cause Jesus to want to leave Jerusalem and go back to Galilee? Anybody have an idea? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest then that what's happening here is that people are starting to step up and take notice and if that begins to take off in too big of a way, the Pharisees may try to push the plan ahead. They may try to get more aggressive with Jesus before the proper time. He's always saying things like, my hour has not yet come. And so there are times where Jesus does a very surprising thing. He flees from the popularity. He moves out from the crowd. He, he tells people strange things like, don't tell anybody what I've done for you. And we think the whole point is, let's tell everybody what Jesus has done. Yes, but the timing needed to be right. Do you understand that? There was a particular timing that Jesus was operating under, that the hour had not yet come. He was waiting for the divine moment. And so because of his popularity rising and these rumors beginning to be spread about him, he needed to leave Jerusalem and allow that to develop naturally. And he went back to Galilee. And then we hear this thing uh, in verse 4. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. I think the next slide to here ought to be a map, and if it's not, I'll be disappointed with that. All right, good. Here's a map. Judea is the southern region. Anybody know why it's called Judea? It used to be where the tribe of Judah lived. Judea is just a um, Hellenized way of saying Judah. Okay. And so Judea would be the southern kingdom, Judah. And so that regional name just kind of stuck there even during Roman times. Okay, Judea. And in Judea, you have uh, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Jericho, and some of, these, uh, some of these other little towns that would surround that area. This is where Jesus is at at the present moment. He's in, he's in Jerusalem. And he's getting ready to leave and go up here north to Galilee. Okay. So you understand uh, here this is north, east, west, south. Okay, so he's going to go up here. And what some more scrupulous Jews would do, unless they were in a hurry, and I, I thought that people almost never did this, but Bible scholars are telling us now I have good evidence to understand that there were a fair amount of people that went through Samaria, but a lot of times more scrupulous Jews didn't want to do that. They felt they were getting spiritually contaminated by being around Samaritans. And so this is one of the reasons why we get the thing, shake the dust off your feet when you go through Gentile territory or 
the region of Samaria, and you come out the other side, you get the, the, the cruddy Gentile dust off of your feet. You don't want to even be contaminated by that stuff. And so that was kind of the thinking there. But it also was common, if you're in a hurry especially, to run straight up through there. But that didn't mean you would try to associate with any Samaritans. So you would want to get through that area as quick as possible. But we have a phrase that's used here of Jesus. It says he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. And that's um, an interesting phrase because that particular wording is used in other places. We've already heard it a couple times, although we didn't know it because it uses different English words. But if you follow the Greek words, the Greek words uh, are found there in in chapter 3, verse 7, when Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Just, you have to be born again. It's the same words. Okay, you have to be born again. Uh, chapter 3, verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. You understand there's, there's something there about uh, obligation. You must be lift, uh, the Son of Man must be lifted up. John the Baptist says in chapter 3, verse 30, that he must become great and I must become small. Okay, these are the same words that are being used. Chapter 9, verse 4, uh, Jesus says, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. I must do the works of him who sent me. You can feel divine compulsion in these words. In uh, chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Okay, so these are the same words. It doesn't exactly reflect that in all of our translations, but... When he's saying that he had to go through Samaria, the way that John normally uses these words suggests divine obligation, like something's being pressed upon him that he has to do. Jesus says, I always do. I only do what I see the Father doing, right? That's his mission. That's his mode of operation is that he does what he sees the Father leading him to do. Uh, the Lexham English Bible uh, translates this this way. It was necessary for him to go through Samaria. Weymouth said his, uh, his road lay through Samaria. So this is talking about necessity. Necessity to go through Samaria. He had, he had uh, here uh, a, a means of the divine necessity to go through there. And so it's already been used twice in John. It's going to be used later of uh, necessity. So he had to leave Jerusalem because of this growing popularity or this growing suspicion regarding him or his his elevated prominence, and, and he's got to let the plan of God develop at God's pace. And that's true of us too. Some, you know, there's, there's two sins that we can fall into when it comes to doing the plan of God. One is to, to get ahead of it, okay, right? Like God, like Abraham, he created a whole world problem, didn't he, when he got ahead of God's plan? Okay, we know what that is, right? And then you can fall behind it. Like Gideon was in a position where he could have fallen behind the plan of God had he not eventually followed through with what God was telling And uh, we see that in other places in Scripture, like when the people return from exile with building materials and uh, the prophet Haggai challenges the people because the, the lumber that was supposed to be used for building the temple just sat there for 15 years. And uh, Haggai comes and he says, you guys say the time has not yet come, but is it time for you to live in houses from pilfered materials? Man, I mean, I'm telling you, there was a jab to that. 
And, you know, Haggai's probably one of the most successful prophets in all the Bible because the people got up and got going after he prophesied. But the problem with them was they were lagging behind. And Jesus, what he's doing is he's keeping in step with the plan of God. And I think that's the significant teaching lesson for us is don't get ahead and don't fall behind. Keep in step. Keep pace. Keep cadence with the plan of God. Otherwise, we find ourselves in real trouble. Uh, sometimes we think, if this is good, then more is better. No, deal with what God has allotted for you for today. And so, what this tells us about Jesus, he knew, he knew the Father's will. And that the Father's will was um, to go through Samaria. So, in one hand, he's being pushed out of Jerusalem. And I think there he's avoiding uh, controversy and where he's going by divine direction is to a place where he's going to have conversation. And I think it's a wonderful picture of what Jesus is about. He can freely move away from one situation and into another, and God's going to continue to use him. And so he knew the Father's will, and he was going through Samaria. And because he was doing the Father's will, he was not going to be contaminated by sin, but he was going to influence those under the power of the devil. And so the reason for him leaving was to avoid the confrontation before it's time. He's not running away. I want to make sure we're clear on this. When I thought about this statement, I thought uh, some people could think Jesus is just trying to avoid conflict. He's not trying to avoid conflict. He knows the conflict's coming, but there's a particular time for the conflict, right? Would you agree with that? That Jesus isn't cowardly. Uh, no one could do what he did and be cowardly. But he, it needs to happen at a particular time. And so he leaves the conflict and he heads towards a conversation. All right? That's in verses 1 through 6. So it tells us that uh, he had to go through Samaria. And he came to a town called Sychar. I think this is associated with the Old Testament, Shechem. Um, and near the plot of ground where Jacob had been given, uh, had given it to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus was tired from his journey, and so he sat down at the well. And it tells us it was about noon. What, is, what does that mean, that it was about noon? It's hot, right? Noon, where is the sun at noon? If you're, it's, you know, if uh, not here because we live in Alaska. It's, it's circling the sky. But uh, if you're somewhere closer to the equator at noon, the sun is directly overhead. It's hot. So this is telling us it's a warm Time. I don't know if there's any shade over the well. All I know is that Jesus sat down. It tells us he was tired from the journey. We see a glimpse of his humanity there. Like, you know, the Old Testament describes God as a God who faints not. But here we see Jesus operating within the realm of flesh. And he's tired from his journey. And I think it's a beautiful picture for us. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember. I'm going to come to that in just a moment. Did you have a question about it? Yeah, I'll talk about that in just a moment. No, you're good. It's uh, something Assyrians, but there's a mix. What Assyrians did is they brought people from other um, areas of the world, other captive peoples, and they they displaced them. So they had no power because they weren't in their own land. So... We don't know exactly who they were. Could have been uh, Assyrians intermarrying with Jews. It could have been some other people that have been con conquered. So who exactly they are, 
Uh, we don't know, but they're kind of a, pardon the expression, but they're kind of a mixed breed of individual. And so let's talk about that, who Jesus met. And this is in verses 7 through 9. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So we have a divide here. Okay, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. And so she's the one that brings out the the distinction. Can you see that? That uh, Jesus doesn't have a problem. I don't think he's as PC as we are. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about everybody and love everybody the same, but we're we're really sensitive in our world about calling out differences, right? Okay, well, this isn't the case here. And the divide is obvious, even if it were it were unsaid, it would have been obvious. Okay, so there... She says, how can you ask me for something to drink because you're a, you're a Jewish male. I'm a Samaritan female. Okay, so Jesus here does something really interesting. And we see this at other times where people, people see him violating uh, human convention. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like little rules that people set up that are cultural rules or norms or things that are polite things that are fiction. We've created them. They're not in Scripture, but they're kind of the rules by which we normally operate. It's kind of a social contract. We all agree. This is kind of the way we do culture. Okay? So you don't say certain things. You know, you don't burp at the table. You don't slurp at the table. That's why I was brought up. You don't slurp at the table. You don't burp at the table. Things like that. But they're not the Bible. Okay? Um, and and that, that's a really crude example. But there, there are other things that, that we do that you just kind of don't do. Like, I'm trying to think of uh, a good one here. But let's just use the ones that we've been given in Scripture here. Jesus crosses some boundaries that have been set up. And I want to suggest to you that he, he crosses three boundaries here in order to reach a whole village of people. But if you want to know how important an individual is, you can look at this story and find that Jesus, compelled by the Spirit, uh, I think, is is the meaning of he had to go through Samaria, goes through Samaria, meets somebody there, crosses, violates some social conventions, and that doesn't mean he sinned, by the way. He violates these things, but he does it in order to reach an individual. Okay? Sometimes there are human rules, like Jesus' disciples got in real trouble because they ate without washing their hands. Oh, my. What kind of spiritual contamination goes with that? We all would be grossed out by that, but we would never attach some kind of spiritual nonsense to it. I hope. Right? Your disciples ate without washing their hands. And Jesus just said, it's what comes out of a man that defiles him, not what goes in. And so he kind of push that aside a little bit. And also, I think when he did that, he opens up the door for what Paul later teaches about. Eat anything set before you without asking questions for conscience sake, because all things are clean if they're done to the glory of God and in faith. All right, so um, three three areas where he crosses these uh, boundaries. The first one is cultural. And so um, I'm going to address where the 
the um, Samaritans come from. So Samaritans live in this area right here. Okay, and if you remember um, in Israel's history that there was a point where somebody else lived in this area. Who was it? Anybody know? Not the Canaanites after them. Think more Jewish. Think more Israeli. Okay? If Judah's down here, who's up here? Israel, the northern kingdom, right? So there's a group of people that live up there. So Jesus crosses here into different culture when he travels through the region of Samaria. When Israel came into the promised land, uh, they defeated some kings over in this area, and they came into the promised land, and they stopped at Gilgal, and there they, I think they circumcised other males, and uh, I believe they came to Shechem. They came into the land, and they began to conquest the area. And at that particular point, Israel is united under Joshua. Are you with me on that? Then they go through a period of... Uh, of years where there's the judges, and in that time, Israel's kind of fragmented among the tribes, okay? And then they are reunited under King under Samuel and then King Saul, okay? And then David, and at David, the point of David, they kind of reach a pinnacle, and maybe the pinnacle gets just a little bit higher, not spiritually, but economically and socially under Solomon, okay? Solomon did some bad things. And then after Solomon came Rehoboam, and then... In 931 B.C., remember we count backwards in the Old Testament, uh, the kingdom split, and we had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom consisted of uh, Judah and Benjamin, and we find a little bit later some of Simeon gets down there. Of course, they've got Levites in there too. And then the northern kingdom has the other tribes. Okay, The biggest one is actually the half-tribe of uh, Ephraim. And later on in Israel's history, when you hear... Uh, oh, Ephraim, my son, like in one of the prophets, it's talking about the whole northern kingdom. It's using Ephraim like Judah's used in the south for the southern kingdom. So you have these two people. Well, in the north, the capital became a town. Do you remember what the northern capital was? What was the southern capital? Jerusalem. Anybody remember what the northern capital was? Samaria. It was called Samaria, Right? Remember, uh, Ahab lived in Samaria, and all the other kings, they kind of lived in Samaria. And Of course, the northern kingdom went way off the rails. Their first king, who was called by God, put a uh, golden calf way up at Dan, and what was the other? In Samaria, maybe Samaria. It was another one down south. So nobody would go down to Jerusalem to worship, and then the kingdom might be reunited, and he'd be out of a job. So they had this divisive history. And, and God sent prophets to the north. Anybody remember the northern prophets? Kind of going the long way about this. But Hosea was a prophet to the north. Uh, Amos was a prophet to the north. Elijah and Elisha were prophets to the north, northern kingdom. Um, but Israel would not listen. And so remember the kingdom split in 931, about 200, 210 years later. Uh, God allowed the Assyrians to come in and conquer the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., 200 years later. What did I say? 100? 200 years later. Um, 722 B.C. And when they did, the Assyrians, who are way up here somewhere, came in and they took off the best and the brightest away. And they left some people there that were the ones that nobody wanted, I guess. 
And then they brought some other people in and relocated them there. And the people of the northern kingdom that were left over intermarried with those other people and with the Syrians and created a hybrid people that are part Gentile, part Jewish, known as the Samaritans. That's where they come from. So what this did is it created a problem between the south and the north because these people who had also gone into an exile, when they returned, they, were, they considered themselves pure Jewish. Of course, Jew is a, a word that comes from Judah. So it's the southern people. And they considered themselves 100% pure descendants of Abraham, descendants of Isaac, descendants of Jacob. These people not only have a, a mix in terms of their ethnicity, but they also have a mix in terms of their religion and culture. Okay, and so there's a despising that takes place there, a great cultural divide. And that centuries-old divide uh, just continued to grow. And you find some skirmishes and some wars. And remember um, when Nehemiah is trying to rebuild the wall, one of his adversaries is named Sanballat. And he was a Samaritan. He was in opposition to what God was trying to do there. And so this divide kept growing and growing. And so uh, the typical Jewish person didn't like Samaritans. And uh, Samaritans returned the favor by not liking Jewish people. And this is what makes the story of the Good Samaritan a story that Jesus used to provoke people. Because we read Good Samaritan. They would not have read or heard Good Samaritan. They would have been angry at the fact that Jesus used a Samaritan as the hero of that story. So there's this problem culturally uh, between these two peoples. All right, I wanted to, to bring that up, and there was something else that uh, went along with that. Let me show you part of this verse. I think this verse comes up next, and if it doesn't, we'll go back. Look, look at John 4, 9. NIV says this way, uh, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So if this is what she intended, then this just describes the cultural divide. Okay. But uh, D.A. Carson said in his commentary, the Greek word there, and you can see it, synchrontai, means make use of. Jews do not make use of, and there's no direct object, Samaritans, okay? So whatever with Samaritans, we don't know exactly what that means, but if she's holding the bucket, Jesus needs a drink, okay? Jesus needs a drink. What she has in her hand is probably the the bucket or whatever it is that she's going to draw water with. And so this word is more typically used of sharing instruments. Are you with me? Uh, plates, buckets, utensils. And so the NET translates this, that uh, the Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Why are you asking for a drink from me? Are you telling me you're going to use my bucket? Okay. Can you see that? Like, I don't know how you feel about drinking after people, but I don't like it. It's, it's kind of gross, isn't it? And I'm not saying you're gross, I'm just saying I would like to keep my cooties and you keep yours. Let's all drink from our own cup. I've accidentally drank from other people's cups before. Uh, but I don't, I don't like to do that. I don't like to make an intentional practice of doing that. Um, and so you could see how this would go is that it's like I don't want to drink from – Jews don't drink from the same cups 
as Samaritans. That's what's probably being said here. The Revised English Bible translates it this way, uh, that Jews do not share drinking vessels with Samaritans. And then if you do have the NIV, if you look next to uh, associate, it'll have a little letter A there. Does anybody see that in your Bible if you're using NIV? If you follow that A down to the bottom of the page or the margin, it'll say that one particular uh, way this could be translated is do not use dishes Samaritans have used. So what the NIV has done is it's put both possibilities there on the page for us so that we can see that could be a possibility here. And what D.A. Carson and some others who are Greek scholars have noticed is in their reading of Greek literature, this is the way that word is mostly used, is sharing utensils. And so the, the other is true. Associate with is probably limited because usually association has to do with table fellowship. And you can't have table fellowship if you won't share utensils. Are you with me on that? So there's a problem here. And the problem is we don't really associate with your kind. But Jesus isn't afraid to do that. In fact, Jesus says, hey, uh, I'd like a drink. Would you mind dipping your bucket down into the well and bringing up some water? Because I'm thirsty. Isn't that kind of cool? Here's the other thing that it reminds me of is when Jesus healed lepers, what are lepers considered by Old Testament definition? Unclean, right? Didn't they have to run around saying unclean? Jesus touched them. So let me ask you this. Does Jesus, when he touches things, become unclean, or does he make the unclean clean? He doesn't become ritually defiled. He purifies everything he touches. I think that's profound. And Jesus, when he, I assume it's Jesus, could be the Father, could be the voice of the Spirit, when Peter's on the rooftop at Simon the Tanner's house, touting his religious scruples, Remember, the sheet drops down from heaven, take and eat. I can't touch anything that's unclean. I can't. Do you know where, it's kind of ironic. I don't think we always catch this, but do you know where Peter is? He's in the house of Simon the Tanner. Do you know what a tanner is? What? It deals with skins. And what are skins? Dead bodies. Have you ever thought of that? Peter's telling, I can't violate my religious scruples, but he's doing it even as he sits there. I think that's kind of fascinating, don't you? Well, Jesus purifies everything that he touches, and so there's this obstacle that's there, and uh, he's willing to to drink from the, the Samaritan woman's bucket. You being a Jew, how can you how can you ask me for something to drink? Because if we understand this right, Jews don't drink from the same vessel as Samaritans. And there's the gender issue. Okay, this is there's a cultural divide between men and women, which kept the two at some distance from each other. And for one, uh, the reason may be it's generally is that women and men were not considered equals by most people. This isn't a consequence of creation uh, in terms of value. In the image of God, He created them male and female. God doesn't value men more than women. Okay. But somehow along the way, that kind of thinking came along where even women were considered property to some. So there was this divide. We've got to protect and and keep separate. And, And there could be wisdom in that. But here with Jesus having pure motives, 
he reaches across that line and ministers to this woman, is willing to talk to her without the presence of some kind of a chaperone. And I think what that says is that I care more about this person's soul than I do about violating religious scruples. He's willing to do it. He's willing to step out and say something. He breaches that social expectation that men and women don't talk to each other. As a matter of fact, when you go to the synagogue, uh, it's men uh, in one part and women in the other. And in the early church even, uh, at some points, maybe in the Corinthian churches, because they were reflecting culture a little bit, uh, sometimes the women would sit in a particular area of the church and the men in another. And one of the reasons Paul says, I, w- I would have that your women keep quiet in the church is because some of the ladies were shouting their husbands, asking questions in the middle of it. And so it's not a prohibition on women speaking up in church. It's a prohibition on being interruptive. You understand? So this, Jesus crosses that and speaks to this woman. Then there's the religious divide. And I'm going to try to go through this because we're, we're moving at a slow pace here. I see some of you starting to fan. You're reaching for your papers anyway. Samaritans believed this. I always thought that the Jews would have known, you know, they're God's chosen people. The Samaritans would have had sort of a shameful demeanor like, yes, you guys down south, you really are God's people. And we're a little lesser, but we're going to still try to do a little bit of the religious thing. But what I found out is that it was exactly the opposite of that, is that they thought Samaritans believed they were the direct descendants of the faithful nucleus of ancient Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they felt this great apostasy had happened when the tabernacle was moved from Gerzim to Shiloh. I'm going to go back to the map here, if I can. Okay, so uh, Mount Gerzim to Shiloh somewhere down in here. Uh, under Eli, they felt like a great apostasy had happened. And then further, when David takes it to Jerusalem, like they've ev- they even had scriptures rewritten to have it out of the mouth of Moses that the uh, tabernacle was supposed to remain on Mount Gerizim. They have their own Bible. That sounds a little like a cult, doesn't it? You know, like when you translate particular verses in order to push your doctrinal uh, specific, that's what... Uh, that's what they had done. So they kind of had their own way of doing things. They believed they were the ones in the right, and the Jews down south were in the wrong. And uh, so there's a dispute about where to worship. They had their own tabernacle. They had their own kind of synagogue system. They had their own Messiah figures, which appeared. And they uh, would have added to the Ten Commandments the first principle of uh, from Deuteronomy 27 that the tabernacle should be built on Mount Gerizim and they expected the return of Moses or prophet like Moses. So they had an expectation and they even had a creed. We know what the creed is. The creed is, uh, we say, my faith is in thee, Yahweh, and in Moses, son of Amram, thy servant, and in the holy law, and in Mount Gerizim, Bethel, and in the day of vengeance and recompense. So these are the things they believed. So when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, this begins to come up. This religious divide. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask something to drink? And he's going to go on and talk about that. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But the woman says later on, and this is in verse 
oh, verse 28. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain right up here. And you uh, Jews worship uh, in Jerusalem. You claim the place of worship is in Jerusalem. So we have a religious divide here. And, and uh, she thinks she's right. And Jesus knows he's right. And so there's this religious divide that's taking place between the two. So uh, the Dictionary of Jesus in the Gospels says they would have regarded themselves not as the remnant of the old northern kingdom of Israel only, but as the original Israel, whereas the Jews descended from a splinter group. And so they felt themselves to be in the right. Okay. So the woman asked, he asked the woman for something to drink. Verse 10 says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have, uh, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, living water. Sir, the woman said, um, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Let's uh, pause here for a moment and think about something in a way that Jesus operates he starts with what's known, and then he moves to the unknown. Okay? What I mean is that he uses a lot of pictures, a lot of metaphors. And he's already done that in the last chapter with Nicodemus when he said, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit. And Nicodemus here's born, and he's caught up in this entering in the mother's womb a second time and being born in a natural way. He can't figure it out, and Jesus has to unpack that for him. That it's like being born, but it's being born in a spiritual way. And so he moves from what's known. Everybody knows what being born is about, right? And now he's, he talks about uh, water. She's, he's asked for literal water, and now he's going to take that as a, a picture for what he's going to offer her. And we see it later on when he talks about food with his disciples. He, he said, don't you want something? To, they said, you want something to eat? And he says, I have food that you know not of. And they, their mind goes, does somebody... Bring Jesus some food? And he's like, no. <laughs> no, my food is different. It's, I'm talking in spiritual terms now. And so he uses these pictures that draw from natural experience but illustrate something spiritual. And I think that's a really good place to start because there are things that, and Jesus says this somewhere in John, that uh, when I've spoken to you of spiritual things, you couldn't understand. I had to speak to you of natural things. So he starts with things that we know, and he moves to the unknown. And that's what's happening here, is that he's offering something. If you had asked me, if you knew the gift of God, and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. Um, there is a Samaritan phrase in which they use the gift of God to refer to the Torah. So it could be that Jesus is saying, if you really knew the scriptures, and if you knew who it was that was asking you for water, you could have asked him, and he would have given you a different kind of water, a living, a living water. So uh, living water, okay? This, here John, I think, is using it to refer, uh, Jesus is using it to refer to the offering of salvation through the Spirit, okay? So... For us, water's easy, and this is why I think this is such a, uh, an important picture here, is that for, for us, water is easy, and so it's hard to really get this, this metaphor in the way that they would, because within a few steps of wherever we're at, at any moment, we can find clean water to drink. Aren't you glad? Thank God for that. 
Okay, but that's not the condition of most of the world. In fact, in Israel, especially during the arid season, it's hard to find drinkable water. And if you don't find drinkable water, you die. Like, we're not, we're not going to probably die of dehydration. And if we do, it's some negligence. Okay? In that situation, it could be easy to get caught between water sources and die. And so when you talk about water, it's not just living water, it's water for life. And Jesus is playing on this wordplay between uh, the life that we know and the water that we know, but he, he uses a different kind of word for life. Okay, living water. And uh, this well here is about, uh, it's about 100 feet deep today, and it may have been deeper in Jesus' day. And the reason for that could be two. One is that they might have... It might have filled in a little bit since then. And the other is that they, they do ex- excavations, and when they excavate, they take the ground level down. So one of those two things might have happened. I don't know in particular why, but the commentaries say it may have been deeper in Jesus' day. And so Jesus, uh, it's interesting, he sometimes says in John that he is the living water, and then he sometimes says that he gives the living water, which means he's the source of spiritual life. And he's also the giver of spiritual life. Spiritual life is eternal life. Those two operate the same way. This is more than, than bios, okay? So two words that are used in Scripture for life. One is bios. Anybody want to guess what that is? It's like biological functionality, bodily function. I know that's got a particular connotation, but... <laughs> You know what I mean by that? That just going through the process of living, our, our bodies have to go through a certain process to live. And there could be a story associated with that, like, like how we live in a natural way. But then the other word is Zoe. And so when he talks about living water, he's using uh, the word for living is, is the Zoe word. And this is talking about the life that he gives, the eternal kind of life. This, this living water is uh, life that he gives. It's the water that gives life. You can't live without water. And especially in this world, that would have been at the forefront of people's minds. And so to understand that you can't spiritually live unless you have this water that Jesus offers. So he's saying, you should have asked me. I would have given you living water. Okay, so Later in John uh, 7, he says, he talks about streams of living water that will flow from within and uh, distinguishes this as the Spirit. The Spirit is the giver of life. Uh, And these will flow from within. Uh, And against this background, it's best to understand living water is the, the new life in the Spirit that Jesus came to give in contrast to the old forms of Judaism. And that's represented by the by Jacob's well. What Jacob can offer, Jacob's well can offer, is physical life, sustaining that to some extent. doesn't give physical life. It sustains it. But what Jesus offers is eternal life. Okay, and this, this uh, is interesting because this comes from the Old Testament as well. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 equates God with the living water. My people have committed two sins, Jeremiah says. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So here he's saying they've turned away from me, who is the source of life, 
and have turned towards their own sources. Jeremiah seventeen thirteen, Lord, you're the hope of Israel. All who forsake you uh, will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Zechariah 14, verse 8 says, on, on that day, the particular day, a future day of the Lord uh, from Zechariah's perspective, the living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it to the east, to the Dead Sea, and half to the west, the Mediterranean, in summer and in winter. And then uh, in the book of Revelation, living water comes up again. Anybody remember who wrote Revelation? John. And anybody remember who wrote John? <laughs> Gospel of John. Okay, so the same author, and in fact, a lot of Bible scholars think that John and Revelation were written about the same time, within the about a couple years of each other. Uh, it says this, uh, He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And I'd just like you to know that uh, water of life is a different way of saying the same thing as living water. Okay? Both of those uh, modify what the water is. It's the water of life, or it's the living water. Okay, and then uh, Revelation twenty two seventeen: the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Jesus says this. Uh, she said, well, I don't see you got a bucket. I don't see you have anything to draw with. Are you greater than Jacob that you're going to dig another well and find another source of water? Maybe the implication here. And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water. And we know from what he says next that when he says this water, he's talking about the water from Jacob's well. Anyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Okay, and You don't see this in English, but you see, they see it in the, um, the Greek word here that this first drinks is in a present participle, which means that you have to do it again and again. Okay, so whoever drinks again and again, you're going to thirst again and again from this natural water. But then he uses uh, what's known as the aorist tense, which means there's one action with continuing effect. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst again. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have to have an ongoing relationship with Jesus. We do. But the point that Jesus is trying to make is that this is the one solution to your real thirst, is Jesus. Are you with me? Isn't that exciting on a hot Wednesday night? That he is the water. We're all getting thirsty here. I mean, this is illustrating the message perfectly. As this gets hotter, we're getting thirstier, and we're wanting to drink of that water, which from which we'll never uh, thirst again. And so he describes this water. If I, you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. And then he says, indeed, the water that I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is the offer of living water, of spiritual life, of eternal life. This is John's obsession in his gospel, is getting people to know if they'll believe in the Messiah, they will have eternal life, and not just when we die, now. To know him, the Bible says, is to know life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Come on, right? Jesus says in John fourteen 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus is the source 
of this life, and there is no spiritual life apart from him. And so now she's getting excited about this. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I would get, I will, I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to draw water. She's kind of missing the point, isn't she? She's still thinking in natural terms. And so there's a little bit more that needs to happen here. What do you think is necessary? Because what Jesus says next tells us this can happen, but something else needs to take place first. Okay. Something needs to take place before he can give her this life. And so he hints at it here. And this is what he requires in verse 16 and following. He says, okay, she says, I want this water. And so he says something. I'd just like you to notice this subtle way that Jesus deals with the problem. Go call your husband and come back. Okay. Do you think Jesus knows what's coming next? Yeah, he knows. Go call your husband and come back. And uh, she says, I don't have a husband. Now, that's not a problem, except for the fact that she's living with somebody that's not her husband. Okay? Jesus isn't saying uh, every woman needs to have a man and there needs to be a counterpart. He's not saying that. Some people think that. Don't think that. Okay? He's not saying that. But what he's saying is... You've got, you got a problem here, and we need to deal with this. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite right, quite true. Sir, the woman said, I perceive you're a prophet. When you get called on your stuff, you start to wonder if there's prophetic abilities. And that's what she does. You're a prophet. Yes, uh, he is a prophet. Our ancestors worship on this mountain. She kind of changes the subject. But I want to ask you, why did, Jesus, why did Jesus go to that subject? So she could confess her sins and repent of them. You can't have salvation without repentance. He's got to deal with our stuff. He has to. And so that's what he does. And so graciously, he, he puts it in such a gentle and subtle way, go call your husband. And then she's the one that's confronted with the fact, am I going to tell the truth to Jesus or I'm going to lie about it? And when she tells the truth, uh, at least begins to go down the road, he reveals what's necessary. And so now she knows something more about him. And I think the purpose of this is that he makes this great offer, but there has to be, we have to come on his terms. have to come on his terms. Okay, so verse 19, I perceive you're a prophet. Verse 20, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain and you worship in that place. Now, it's a question of where, are we gonna, where am I going to worship? Okay, there's a, this is a, maybe a religious smokescreen. I don't know exactly what's taking place here, but maybe she's trying to unpack the difficulty of receiving from Jesus. Like you're a worshiper down there and I'm a worshiper up here and Back then, if we understand that worship a lot of times was centered in a place, didn't need to be, but that's how it was thought of. I mean, Abraham went all over the place worshiping God and building altars. But once a a place gets settled, and we even do it in our New Testament era where we have the Holy Spirit and we're vehicles of God's presence wherever we go, and we're we're modern-day arcs of the covenant. Everywhere we go, we've got the presence of God with us. But you know what happens? We... We think of this building as our church. 
and we got to come to the church, and then we worship at the church. There's nothing wrong with that. We come to the church, and we worship at the church, so we can worship with one another, and we can keep the snow off our heads. And that's wonderful. But everywhere we go is a place where God goes. Come on, isn't that true? So, and a lot of our understanding of that comes right out of John chapter 4. We worship here, and you worship there. And Jesus says this amazing thing. I've got two minutes here. He says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know, okay? He's going to talk about in spirit and truth in just a moment. And it's not good worship just to feel nebulous about God. We need to be informed by how he's revealed himself. Do you understand what I mean by that? I think sometimes we feel more spiritual when we don't talk about theology. But if you want to really worship God, you need to worship him the way that he's revealed himself. And so we need to understand what he said about himself. I love one of the Psalms says, my heart was stirred by a noble theme. I was thinking on the things of God and it stirred my heart to worship. And I find that when I read good theology, I want to worship God. It doesn't drive me from him, it drives me to him. I'm like, man, God is more awesome even than I thought. And it drives us to him. And so he says, we, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For that's the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. The Father is looking for worshipers. God is spirit and worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. I'm going to try to explain this the best I can, and then we're going to um, speed through the rest and we'll be done. But to worship in spirit and in truth means that we can't legitimately worship unless we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. That's the core of what that means. If we're going to worship, it has to be through the Spirit. And in fact, there's a, a thing that can happen in which we can get real ritualistic that if I do this certain thing, and especially in Israel, if I offer this animal, that this will be worship. And a lot of people went through the motions in a tangible way, but they weren't really worshiping God. Their heart was far from Him. And what makes worship possible is that the Spirit of God is worshiping through us. We worship with His help. You know, um, apart from that, we can't offer anything to God that's that's uh, worthy of Him. It's only because, and, and this is part of the divine humility, that God who deserves our worship condescends Himself through the Holy Spirit to come along beside us and to help us worship Him. What kind of God do we serve? I mean, I think for me, if I wanted a worshiper, I don't want to help somebody do that. I want you to do it because I'm worthy of it. You know what I mean? And I hope you understand me using myself in that example. And maybe you feel the same way, but here's the humility of God as he says, I deserve the worship, and you should rightfully worship me, but I'm going to help you with it. So he gives us his spirit. His spirit makes worship possible. And I don't necessarily mean in every Pentecostal fashion. That's part of it. But I mean even when we're thinking about what words to say and as we're worshiping there and, and God's spirit is saying to us, you got a, a sin blockage we need to take care of. Or as you're worshiping, he's enlightening you and showing more of what he's like. God's spirit helps us. And then it's spirit and in truth. And in particular, 
we can't worship except through the truth of Jesus Christ. That is necessary. And I think Jesus is hinting at that here. When it talks about truth in John, it's always related to Jesus. Okay, We worship in spirit and in truth. You can't be a true worshiper of God. It, it can't take unless we come through Jesus. Our worship is not valid unless it's through Jesus. You understand what I mean through Jesus? We don't, it's not us saying in Jesus' name or it's not us in some way imagining ourselves in Jesus. It's that by faith in Jesus, that's the only thing that makes worship real. Otherwise, we still stand far off from God as sinners apart from him. We have to worship through his self-revelation. So the woman said, I know that the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. Okay, here's the truth. I know when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. He'll lead us into more truth. And Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So she goes back. Disciples come. They've got questions about what's going on. Like, Jesus, why are you talking to the Samaritan woman? And she takes off, leaves her jar behind, which I think is intended to say it's kind of a rush thing. And she says to everybody, I didn't mention this, but I should. If she's alone by herself in the heat of the day getting water, it's probably because she feels ashamed that she doesn't want to be around the other ladies. Because normally ladies go gather water together. And she's doing it in the hottest part of the day. She probably is a little bit of a social outcast, and I think it has something to do with her man, her men problem. Okay? So now she's there, and she goes back to this place that has cast her off, and she bears witness to Jesus. Everybody hears her testimony. They put some kind of faith in Jesus. She says, come see a man who told me everything that uh, I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town, and they made their way to him. Meanwhile, his disciples asked him some questions. And I just want to pass through this passage as he has some discussion with his disciples and come to this because we're out of time. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And then as they inquired more, in addition to her testimony, they came to know him more, and their um, understanding of him was confirmed and deepened. And I think this is what John is telling us in these first few chapters. Remember, the disciples, early disciples, come and see. And when they came and saw, they grew in their understanding of the Messiah. And so sometimes it's a simple invitation, come see. And when we do, we find that he's better than we ever expected. He's better than people told us he was. Anybody found that to be true? Jesus is better than the, the witness that others gave to him. And, and he's better than the witness we give to him, too. He's worthy of our trust. And I think that's the point of this. Jesus is the source of our living water. He's the source of our spiritual sustenance. We could learn something about how he deals with this lady. He does it with such grace. He crosses some of the social no-nos in order to, to get to where she's at. And I hope the Lord will teach us a little bit more than what I've said here tonight. But... Um, if we come away tonight knowing in this conversation, Jesus reveals himself to a lady who was far off, and she comes to trust him, and others come to They ask him, stay two days. He stays two days with them before going on. Most Jews would have been like, we're out of here. We're not going to take time to stop. He stuck around. Jesus isn't contaminated by their sinfulness. He purifies everything he touches. Thank God for a Savior like that. Amen. Stand with me. Thanks for your... 
uh, extra time tonight. I'll take it off the sermon on Sunday again. All right. Father, thank you for uh, showing us such a beautiful picture of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that your Savior who gives living water and that we found what we've been looking for when we drank from the water of life and we'll never thirst again. We're not going to go looking for other sources. We're not going to believe a rumor about other messiahs. We're going to put our faith completely in you. Help us to be witnesses in a similar way that you were a witness that can talk with people and go from the known to the unknown to to gently and when where necessary, perhaps harshly. Speak those things that need to be said so that people can come to put their faith in you in a real way and know the same truth that we know, that you're a wonderful Savior. We pray for your help in this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.